Welcome to the Positive Education Podcast with Ash Manuel. As we know, the number one hot topic in the world is mental well-being. Ash has worked with close to 1,000 organizations impacting more than a quarter of a million people, including schools, sports teams, and businesses across 45 countries. Today, Ash is regarded as a global thought leader in positive education. In this podcast, you'll hear stories, information, and actionable ideas from positive education and well-being experts. The purpose of the podcast is so that you take away ideas that you can execute in your classroom, across your school, at your sports club, and in your organization, plus tips and tricks that you can apply in your own life. Hi, everyone. I'm Ash Manuel, and today I'm talking with Dr. Judith Scar. Judith is the founder and CEO of of Positive Ed and Mental Toughness Institute. And she's a member on the advisory board of the Global Flourishing Study led by Harvard University in collaboration with Baylor University. Gilda is a positive psychologist and mental toughness expert with a master in education and doctorate in the conceptualization and application of mental toughness in education. Gilda specializes in the design and implementation of well-being and mental toughness in learning, decision-making, quality of relationships, performance, and organization, organizational climate, measuring mental, mental toughness and the influence of mental toughness training on key life outcomes. She's authored numerous peer-reviewed books and journal articles and, present, and presently sits on the editorial boards of a number of, uh, of, a number of international peer-reviewed journals. Gilda is an international keynote speaker and consults around the world with, with school and Fortune 500 companies on best practices for integrating well-being, mental toughness, and positive psychology domains into training and product design. Her vision is to empower individuals to fill their potential through human-centered, whole-person leadership, promoting sustainable flourishing across micro, meso, and macro levels. Hi, Gilda. Thanks for joining us. Pleasure. Absolutely pleasure. Thank you for having me. No problem. Now, I'd love to uh, ask guests just a little bit about their backgrounds, how they came to, I guess, be with R today. So I'm really interested to know, Gilda, a little bit, a little bit about your background and what moment um, or what led to you down the path of positive psychology or, or positive education? What, what was one of those moments or how did you get involved in positive education? Well, that's a good story. Um, right. Um, well, I can tell you that um, it wasn't intentional. Um, I kind of, my, uh, I felt like my life was quite settled. Um, I used to be a lawyer mm. uh, for about 15 years. And then I had my son. Um, and somehow everything kind of changed in terms of timing. And I thought, well, you know, is there anything else out there which I could do? Um, and I thought, well, psychology sounds like a most natural fit for me. So um, I was more about a journey of discovery for myself, thinking, yeah. you know, to learn a little bit more about human behavior, human flourishing. And um, that's how we started. So I kind of gave up looking after um, uh, on my uh, profession and was looking after my son, did the psychology. And then um, one day I was listening um, um, to um, breakfast news about positive psychology. And at the time, never heard even the term, to be honest with you. Mm. Psychology for me was just normal psychology. Yeah. And um, then I heard about Marty and I was like, wow, this sounds good. Um, not thinking really beyond positive psychology, not thinking about positive education. 
but um, then I took the, 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 the positive psychology uh, map and I thinking, well, there is a way, a different way of approaching. Um, and I really love the concept. And uh, with my son growing up, um, I thought, initially I thought I'm going to go into forensic psychology because I thought, well, with the background in law, this is, this is perfect. Yeah. Um, but, you know, watching your son grow up in the front of your eyes and looking at the world around you and then thinking, Oh, this is quite interesting. I kind of like to know. Um, I'm, I'm coming from a communist country as well, so I was always very interested to see what makes people flourish. Yeah. Why? How? How do you? How do you get through pain, obstacles, and you know navigate all these challenges, but then come to the other side without the compromising or without compromising your well-being? And um, that's how kind of started. And. Um, I um, asked my son's school to see, well, you know, can I apply some of these things in your school and see mm. how it works? And they were like, what is that? <laughs> um, especially in England. And uh, when, you know, it was a really kind of a wow moment where mm. you realize the teachers kind of thinking, never thought about this. Mm. This is looking quite good. How can we do it? And then I started really, really exploring further and I realized how important that element for a child is regardless of its age and giving them that kind of confidence that that empowerment in a way to kind of take control of their emotion understand who they are yep. um, and how conducive to the learning is yeah so that's my journey no absolutely <laughs> that's very interesting I coming from a I guess that lawyer lawyer, lawyer background mm. um into positive psychology well that's that's really incredible um journey what, what just go back a step um you mentioned about i know that you're based in the uk now but where were you from originally uh i'm originally from romania oh romania so i came here yep. yeah i came in 1995 yep. 1995 yeah a long time ago long time ago <laughs> yeah. like a lifetime ago <laughs> only five years yeah only five years after the um failing of the communist um um uh, system so uh, yeah. so i kind of grew up in the midst of the communist era so um yeah yeah very different world yeah I absolutely mean, literally. Uh, it's, uh, it's <laughs> interesting. yeah definitely I, I mean our background is quite um different but the way we got into i guess the positive education side is quite similar i came across um, positive psychology as a thing as well uh, and never really mm. understood never realized it existed but then mm. I, I um came again across martin seligman's work as well and um not, not originally, but people were referring to his work and then I mm. got right into it. And just like, a, like yeah. I realised, just like learning a skill in a sport, you can learn to practice to be a more resilient person through do, doing certain little um, consistent activities or little interventions that can actually really help us. So, um, and then I wish I learned as a kid as well and being a teacher. <laughs> so it was one of those th things where I combined uh, what I knew, or what I, sorry, what I learned for my own benefit with what I knew as a, a teacher. So... Um, yeah, very, it's interesting, like different pathways, but sort of we came yeah. guess, across positive psychology for our own benefit first, then realised that this would be great to teach. I think others. that's kind of, yeah, that's kind of that it started. And I think we were, as human, we always in that pursuit of understanding better. But also, I think we have this kind of ingrown thing about fixing things, about looking mm. in a completely different lens and obviously with Marty's work yep. you kind of think hold on a second I'm not have to look at 
what's wrong with me? How about what's right with me? Yeah. And I think for me, that that changed everything because yep. we all have some strength. We all have some oh, goodness. Absolutely. It's just that we go through life looking at fixing what is not working mm. instead of concentrating with what working. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. No, totally, totally agree with that. And um, something would be great for you, obviously both of it, both that we're um, real passionate about is teaching young people. And I guess um, I know that you work with uh, a whole range of people dual like with corporates, but also I know that you work a lot with um, teachers and also students. So I'm really interested to know about what's your philosophy on teacher wellbeing, um, I guess, in this current world, particularly, I guess, off the back of COVID, because for me, uh, you've got nurses and you've got mm. teachers um, mm. and I guess um, first respondents as well uh, come under that category, but yeah. teachers as well. Uh, they're, they're some of the heroes that are part of coming out or sorry, during that COVID period really stood out. So I'm really interested to know what, what's your philosophy on teacher wellbeing and I guess your approach when you work with teachers. Yeah, um, to be honest with you, my, my love, um, it's really education. You know, I yep. love the corporate work. Um, in, in a sense, it's easy because people intentionally choose to do something. Mm. Um, with education, it's very different. And I think we have to remember that um, education is one of the hardest things to change as well, mm. uh, partly because it's informed by sometimes most of the country's political decisions, you know, and teachers always say, well, I don't think so. I can do this. But for yeah. me, um, um, flourishing or teacher well-being really has to be at the core because I do call, I, I do think uh, teachers are first responders as well, especially mm. through what we've been through. Um, yeah. You know, uh, you know, without what, how quickly they adapted, and um, during the pandemic, our society would have been kind of dead in the water, really. Yeah. So they had no choice but to navigate all the challenges put in front of them but in terms of well-being I think um, everybody and we can see now the the, the, the kind of rewriting those effects that nobody actually thought about themselves at the time so they kind of went during the pandemic definitely I think people just reacted to a situation they put themselves on the first line um, they threw it everything they've got into in, into into mm. teaching and supporting young people we a bit of expense and that was their own well-being um we know well-being is not easy and i think this is where i wanted to kind of highlight and i'm sure you see this we go with the best intention but when it comes down to actually um taking it to a next level or creating a habit of our own well-being and knowing how to approach it is a very different story mm. um and i think it's creating awareness so not much of a philosophy is just stop looking outside and try to kind of level up um, between how you show up as a teacher and yeah. how you show up as a human. Um, and remembering that if you're not well, nobody else around you is well. And I think even this kind of very simplistic approach to well-being, it's very difficult because people will nod and they will say, yes, I know, but I haven't got the time. It's always the same. Doesn't matter. I work in the Middle East a lot, in the Southeast Asia, and the story, it's almost identical. I haven't got the time. Mm -hmm. But I think when you create a bit of awareness and you kind of give people the right tools, they start realizing that actually it's not 
too bad, I can do this. Mm. It's just the consistency of yep. the approach towards well-being. Mm. And I think you nailed it on the head when you mentioned that word awareness. Like that's I think that's where it starts, having that awareness about, okay, mm. well, maybe I'm not having the best day or not going through the best patches of teachers for my own wellness. That's the number one step. And then you, you're right, you've got to take action on that to do something about it. And it's got to be consistent. And yeah. I think, um, and it doesn't have to be long. Like you mentioned about, consistent messages that I don't have time, but it's not necessarily about hours and hours, is it? It's just sometimes no, the short moments. They are small things, you know, mm. and you know, you, you, you know best on this one, but it, one thing which I, I personally never thought about it consciously, of course I was, I'm, I, I always, well, I hope that everybody who knows me knows that I'm very kind and very empathic. But when I actually discovered the, the, the word gratitude, um, mm. practicing gratitude, something simple as that, and you take it for granted because you kind of think, yeah, but I do that. That's part of who I am. The reality is not quite as simple. Mm. When you intentionally do something so small, like being grateful for the things you have or being grateful for, for to someone mm. uh, or being kind or doing something, a just small gesture, you realize how everything changes for you mm. more than in a way changes for the other person. So that's why I'm talking about that awareness because also we're not very kind to ourselves. Mm. We are so hard on ourselves. We want, because we thrive for the best. Of yeah. course, there's nothing wrong with it. Yeah. But there is that element of feeling vulnerable. So therefore we push, push, push without actually taking the time to kind of either sit a little bit uncomfortable with the feeling mm. and then move on. We just, you know, and I think this is where we need to level it up because well-being, yes, it is consistent. You have to, you know, to reach that level of kind of optimal functional, you have to be consistent in your approach and use different strategies. But most important is doesn't take a lot of time. No. But you have to make that space. You need to make that space five, ten minutes a day. And that's not a cup of tea and a and a you know and, a, and an apple. Um, it really is something which you do intentional. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think it's important just to add on to that. It's important to find out what works for you as an individual as well. Um, mm. having those little strategies because we, we can um, give ideas to teachers and I guess mm -hmm. suggest things and build their, use the word toolkit before, give them the tools, but it's really important for not only teachers, but everyone to find out if you're having a bad day or going through a bit of a bad time, just to find out what works for you. And, and I know for me, like you mentioned gratitude, that's my, my two go to a, a gratitude mm -hmm. phys physical activity. Um, yeah. And they're the ones that really, make me feel good so i love starting the day with physical activity because it puts me in a good mood but if i have a bad day mm. i know that that will work for me doing some physical activity at the end of the day as well um yeah so it's, i think it's a really great point you make i think well. people have a bit of a misconception about when we talk about well-being that mm. uh, if you know like for example i heard a teacher who said well i can't do mindfulness the moment i went into a school and talk about positive education said yeah but i can't i don't have that and i said well why do you think it's just mindfulness? And I said, well, because that's what I've been told most <laughs> of the time, and this is yeah. what I hear. And, and I think I'm so pleased that you mentioned that because, you know, there are several strategies. For me, mindfulness doesn't work because I can't stay still. I'm 200 kind of meters an hour kind of go to uh, yeah. activities, you know, like physical activities is not giving me that rush or that adrenaline. But reading a book, it takes me to a different level. Everybody's different. And I think this is where we need to understand that well-being, does, it's so subjective. Mm. And, you know, we, you just have to find what works for you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, 
Now, Gilda, one of the things that um, I love to do on this podcast is give teachers ideas. So um, mm -hmm. basically ideas to try. So you see if it works for them. So you mentioned about um, the tools before. What, what's maybe one or two ideas that you could mention or sorry, you could give teachers or um, people who are listening to try? Have you got some that off the top of your head or probably um, put you on the spot here? Well my go-to, yeah, I mean, beside gratitude and which so many people know and so very few people do practice because yeah. they think it's kind of something we have. Um, one of the things which I learned through the years, um, it's something so simple. Um, and it came up from a quote from Viktor Frankl. Yep. Um, um, and I'm sure so many people might know the quote, but, you know, living by that quote for me has changed my life because I've always been quite reactive. Um, and is between the stimulus and response, there is a space, and that space is our power to make the right decision. Um, and in a way, it is a kind of mindfulness, but taking that moment for yourself in the morning, in the afternoon, when you feel the things are bubbling up to the surface, when you feel that in front of a class and you get a little bit irritated or a bit tired, take that moment, show that vulnerability to young people, model it, and for me, that has been an absolutely game changer. Um, and another thing which um, I, um, I feel it's um, um, very conducive, it's actually sitting with a negative emotion and reframing it. Mm. And I've heard that so many times from the teachers. I haven't got time. This is toxic positivity. And I said, I'm not, because it's almost insulting when somebody is not feeling that great yeah. to say, you know what? I think it's very, you know, it, it, it shall pass. It's not about that. It's about actually understanding in that moment. Mm. And again, it is the, about that, that space. But it's really interesting to see when um, when teacher actually find that space for themselves, yeah. What, how much it changes into their own teaching, into their own practicing as yeah. well. Yeah. Oh, it's not a magic bullet. You know, I wish I, I, wish I could, you know, um, I could... Um, so, but there are so, so many little things yeah. which make a difference. And I think mostly comes to our reaction, mostly come to our reaction to everything. Yeah. Um, once we master that, I think everything else seems to be pretty manageable. Hmm. I, I just think reframing is one of the most powerful, one of the most powerful skills we can develop as a person. And we can practice it. Like it's, mm. it's having that awareness as well. We keep talking about awareness, but it's so true. Like, having that awareness to feel that negative emotion, which is totally fine. It's going to happen. Of course it's going to happen because we're people, but it's also good to have that awareness to be able to reframe it into a situation. And when personally, I'll just add on from what you said, then Julia, mm. is that if I go into a classroom with students and we do a gratitude activity, um, I'll explain how personally I use gratitude to reframe coming. Um, I use my self-talk to reframe a situation coming from a place of being grateful. So mm. I just might have had a bad day and I'll just say to myself, look, today's just been one of those bad days. But you know what? If I actually put it in perspective, <laughs> it's actually not that bad. I've still got some of the, yeah. the basic things. I think you nail it. Really, yeah, absolutely nail it because yeah. the psychological resilience doesn't come from the positive feelings as such. It comes from leveraging your negative feelings. Mm. And it's that ability to create positive reframing or positive adaptation, if you want to, to, to say, to negative events. And that's why I get a little bit sad when people talk about positive psychology kind of almost negatively by mm. saying, yeah, but you don't want me to be always positive. Nobody's saying that. And that's not what positive psychology is. Yeah. 
is that ability to to take things like anger or sadness and make them useful yep. and productive is that ability to experience failure yeah. and to use to improve it you know that's kind of um you know turning lemons into lemonade is not quite as simple as that mm. you know yeah absolutely and i think uh, I know that we're talking about teachers here, but if we can teach young people these skills for as early as possible, planting the seed when they're even four or five years of age, it's some basic, some basic concepts. And then as they get older, obviously their understanding um, increases and also um, the level of what we can teach increases as they get older too. But mm. if you just start young, I, I think that's just going to put the world in a lot better place. Um, yeah. Because at the moment, like, as you know, we, we tend to react. But if we can come up, like react when a issue comes up, Mm. and I think we have to remember one thing that especially with teaching um, you know I start the same perhaps like other other people who um, um, are positive psychology practitioner thinking oh if I go into a school and I put a, an approach or a curriculum to the students because obviously my love and drive was empowering young people to become the architects of their own well-being and success mm. and I realized that I went the wrong way around because if a teacher shows up in a classroom and she's not well and she's not taking care of her own well-being those students doesn't matter what strategies you put in place it's not going to work yeah you know and i think this is where it's this kind of really good marriage between that relationship between a teacher and a student you know and supporting each other in a sense because i've seen students in a school really supporting the teacher by acknowledging and said oh miss you're not seeing yourself today, you mm. know, by just being so open mm. um, and understanding as well. And, and for me, I work with the secondary school uh, teachers, mostly in higher education. And I realized that I wish I would have more um, understanding for the primary school uh, because children's development at an early age is not quite my thing. Yeah. And I realized the earlier you can start, the better it is. Yeah. You know, because yeah. by the time they get to the secondary school, they kind of almost create some habits and they kind of sort of tap into the world around there and they just rush to grow up uh, yeah. with certain, you know, with the lack of certain skills, really. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Totally agree with that. And um, just slightly to change or keep on that topic of, I guess, um, going back to teach well-being, Gilda, from company, mm-hmm. I know that you've worked in numerous um countries or places around the world what do you is there a, um, a pattern from country to country oh, with teacher well-being oh wow oh yeah um, or, or, yes, actually is. can i ask that question slightly differently so the pressures on teachers from country to country that might mm. be that might be a better question because i know that um you've worked a lot in the um uae i believe mm-hmm. um, and i know that in a country like the uae there's so much pressure on students to achieve yeah. high standards, to get their scholarships, to get into the universities, same in um, right across Asia as well. Um, mm. And whereas some schools, depending on where they are in the world, um, or I mean, sure, they're anywhere in the world, there's this issue with um, um, behaviour management, just trying to get through the day kind of thing. So there's that mm. different pressures. Have, have you noticed that from country to country? Absolutely. And also from curriculum to curriculum. So if you go to a a, a Indian school, (laughs) very different. Or if you go to a Chinese school, very different than a, than a, you know, just a a British curriculum, for example. But again, I think varies, but I generally um, feel that there is, um, you know, we know globally that teachers have lots of pressures. I mean, that's undoubtedly, 
but they are very different pressures. So yes. for example, in the Middle East, you can see the pressures that which come from the government, from the parents, from the students themselves, mm. because they want, and you know, you have to remember most of them um, kind of, um, you know, there might be the, uh, the, the, the first generation is going to university and they want to make the parents proud. They might, you know, my parents work, and I hear that repetitively, especially in the Middle East and Southeast Asia, say, but my parents put everything into my education. And they never actually pause to say, is this what I want? They have to go that way. So yeah. the pathways are always carved. And then the teachers feel that pressure from the parents to say, my child needs to do this. I don't care how it happens. My child needs to get into this university. And you can see again, even in Britain, um, in certain schools. But I feel that Europe, um, it's a little bit um, less driven by um, this kind of academic, what I call academic success, like the yep. academic pressure. It's yep. more leveled, uh, but definitely the Middle East and Southeast Asia is. And I've seen teachers really, I've, I've worked with a school in, uh, in Dubai where um, teachers were constantly on sick leave. Oh, right. Because of that. And it was quite, I never quite understood how tough it was they just couldn't cope because mm. the parents is consistent, you know, sending emails at 11 o'clock at night, mm. five o'clock in the morning. That pressure, yeah. um, it, it is, uh, you know, very difficult to cope with and teachers don't know what to do. And then therefore, you know, you, you, you have that kind of either leaving the profession um, or, yeah. you know, kind of trying to cut the hours and, you know, teaching is, it's from the heart, isn't it? Everything mm. comes from the heart. Everybody who goes into teaching goes for the right reason. Yep. You know, very. I, I've never met yet a teacher who they say, "Oh, you know, just kind of is an easy life." It's never easy life, <laughs> you know. And I think we're not yes. we're not really highlighting how what kind of you know. When I said to you at the beginning about the first responders, maybe it's a step a little bit too far. But in a way, for me, if my son, I've got an eighteen-year-old boy who's now going to university, but he had the hardest time of his life because the GCSE stopped and then all of a sudden he found himself this year having to take A-levels, something which is never done, any, any kind of examination at that level. Mm. And the teachers, the, you know, the, you know, the approach has been absolutely magnificent. And only then you realise, you know, because as parents we're kind of thinking, well, that's their job, right? Mm. We yeah. don't realise how much it takes out of these people to to kind of make the world keep going yeah absolutely and, and what just out of interest what is your son studying at university uh medicine medicine wow yeah but, um, i know it's been a tough 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 year i cannot tell you because um um in england especially after the pandemic yeah. we had an increase of 35 percent on students applying to medical school oh increase so increase yeah because wow. of the pandemic and, yeah, right. you know, just to put these things in a context to see the, the, the level of um, competition. So Queen Mary had about 7,800 applicants and they only had 120 places. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah. So you can realise how a student applying to something, even with eight stars, they're not getting in. Um, yeah. My son didn't get into all the choices he, he put on, the, on there. Yeah. And then you think, but what's wrong? Mm. I, I've I've got really good stuff. It doesn't quite work like that. Yeah. Um, so um, mm. 
Yeah, it's interesting. And just going back, I, I know in the Middle East, the UAE, um, I won't name the school, but <laughs> one um, yeah. one principal I was talking to, um, he he arrived at the school as the new principal and um, they actually, there was a big issue with, because there's so much pressure on the students to achieve those high mm. standards that a lot of, um, there was a lot of plagiarism um, that they were dealing with at the school. So he had to come in and actually really, uh, I guess, remodel the um, the well-being to help the students handle the pressure. So to his credit, mm. he he saw what was happening and then he realised, okay, well, yes, there is a lot of pressure because he, he wasn't, he's not, he's from um, uh, the UK actually. So he, he came over, um, took over from this school as, as the leader and he saw these things happening. He realised, well, we need to change the approach. We need to have more wellbeing initiatives within the school to help mm. students deal with the, these, um, the pressures. So I guess building those tools that they can use um, to deal with those pressures rather than, I guess, go down that plagiarism path, which I, Yeah. I think the problem with, especially in the UE, the problem with well-being, I mean, it's very well from the government point of view. Mm. It's very well driven. Um, uh, but obviously the pressures in terms of inspections and, you know, academic achievement and everything else is very, very high. Yep. But the problem as well, which uh, happens is um, the fact, I mean, there are two problems. One is the fact that sometimes teachers don't know where to go for the well-being. Yep. So they go a little bit blind in their thinking. I kind of know a little bit about this and I'm going to try to push it the best I can. But also we have to remember that in a UE, every school competes with another school. Yeah. And say, if I come in and I have, say, like an off-the-shelf, I don't know, approach or um, other schools might thinking, yeah, but I don't want the same thing, you know. I need to stand out. I need to do something different, you know. And um, I think this is where um, I feel that teachers need to work with somebody from outside to create, to co-create something which works for their school, their environment. Yeah. Because although they might, I mean, I when I go to Dubai, there is a road, right? And they are about 30 school next to each other. Oh, right. Never seen anything in a country, in any country, anywhere. Ah, interesting. Literally one school, literally their neighbors, 36 schools in a row. How do they work Can out where they go? That? <laughs> and you're thinking, Right. How do you, as a parent, if yeah. you live in that area, how do you choose? Exactly. Of course, you choose yeah. by the curriculum. Yeah. But you have seven Indian curriculums, uh, five Americans, ten yeah. British. How do you choose? So, therefore, that school has that pressure already built in. How do I stand out? How do I bring your kid to my school? Mm. So, now, the most important thing is that holistic approach. Although... Some of the schools say, no, it's all about academic, you know, because I'm measured on academic. I am inspected on the academic. I'm inspected how many kids go to the Ivy League, you know, mm. and that's kind of need to live. And I, and I always say to the teachers, I understand the system. We yeah. can fix the problem. I can't help that. I wish I could, but I'm not a politician. And, you know, as, as long as politics drives education, <laughs> we've got yeah. a problem. Yeah, but... Right. There is another way. You don't have to be too top down. You can do it bottoms up. And there are so many ways to do it. But it is incredibly, I found Middle East the most fascinating place in the world. That's but interesting. But there's also 
they are very willing to try as well. Yeah. You yes. go to the UK, well-being is still behind, I would say, compared to, yeah. <laughs> you know, compared to the Middle East, because yeah. it's like a nice thing to have. That's kind of approach to the well-being in the UK. Yeah. It's a really lovely thing to have. Yeah. It's not yeah. something which is weaved mm. into the life of the school. Yeah. It's interesting that because I'm I, where uh, I'm in Australia, I'm in Adelaide in Australia, and we've got, um, I think we're pretty good at well-being in schools across um, Australia. There's a lot more awareness around it now, and a lot of schools are doing it. Um, some kind of well-being in their schools, which is which is brilliant. Um, but I'm just fascinated by that 36, <laughs> those 36 <laughs> schools in a row. Like I can just I can just picture that right now. These and they wouldn't be small schools either. Like no, be, God, some of them um, they're like a palace. Yeah, and. <laughs> I just, I just picture like a food court, like, you know, how you in mm. a food court, you got these little food places next to each other. It's just like that with schools, just <laughs> you drive through. It is, it is absolutely amazing. I've just come back from Oman, actually. Where, where and, was that? Was uh, it in the UAE or was it in? Yeah, where? in UAE, yeah, in Dubai. In, in Dubai, Dubai, the 36 schools yeah. in a row. All oh, right, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, and then you have Sharjah, the other Emirate, which is very much the same. Yeah. Very much the same. But then you go to Abu Dhabi, it's a little bit more settled. They still got lots of schools, but not, not. I mean, what I've seen in Dubai and in Sharjah is just like, I never even envisaged that there exists a place like that. Yeah, that's so it's interesting. It's quite crazy. <laughs> that is, that is. So you can imagine the competition. You know, oh, yeah, totally. Obviously, all the schools are private. Totally. You know, yeah, absolutely. And well, how do you, you can't compete just to the price. It has to be something, another layer, another yeah. level. And yeah. obviously, well-being is at the forefront of everything there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, that's brilliant. Now, we'll, just, we'll keep moving, Jill. Um, I'm interested to know, with them, um, as I mentioned before, we love to give uh, takeaways to mm-hmm. listeners um, to try, to take away and try in the classroom or mm-hmm. their own benefit. Um, so with, uh, whether you're working with teachers or students on occasions, what, what would you, um, what, what do you think work well in the classroom so maybe teachers teaching students some skills or some programs or approaches that work well well to be honest when i uh it's it's so difficult uh, to pinpoint to something specific but there are quite few things which i've seen them working and i think is First of all, change the language in a school. I mean, yeah. sounds really very simple, but it's the one of the most effective way of understanding well-being, model well-being, uh, model vulnerability, habits creation. For me, it's one of the most beautiful things because everything starts with the habit. Yeah. And Great. I've seen it in working with the teachers, changing that narrative about even the way how they show up in a classroom. And um, I remember that um, in some um, Indian schools where the teachers are very much very um, authoritarian, the way how they approach, um, you know, to see that change um, and showing that vulnerability in a classroom has changed the whole dynamic because the moment you build that relationship with the student, it changes the narrative, it changes the teaching, but changes the learning. And for me, that's one thing which I've seen reoccurring around the schools mm. when teachers really know how to connect with the students. Yeah. Um, and that's a skill in itself, mm. creating that positive relationship 
understanding people from a different perspective, not looking down while you were a kid. What do you know? I learn from kids more than I learn from adults. Yes. <laughs> if you just give them the, the chance uh, to talk and give them the language to talk. And um, I love Lindsay Oates' uh, work uh, on emotional literacy. You know, he's such a great um, uh, uh, researcher in kind of always being driven by that change the language. The mm. moment you change the language, things come easier because it comes with a level of self-awareness and understanding. And when kids know how to use the right words for what they feel, it's more likely that they can change it. And it's also very conducive to their own learning. Mm. Um, so it's not always about, um, you know, ne um, necessarily being positive or being optimistic. And remembering that every skill we have in our toolbox, it's a learned skill. Not yep. always they come naturally. I mean, we might be lucky a little bit of something, yep. um, but mostly they come with a, um, you know, with the practice and mastering that and reflecting on it. Mm. So, um, yeah, that's what I would say that it is just uh, creating habit. The habit loop works incredibly well in, yep. as a teacher level and as a, as a student level. And, uh, you know, again, I, I know you do gratitude, but that's for me one of the things which I see kids realizing because we live in such a fast paced society. Mm. The social comparisons are the highest I've ever seen it. And kids still have this skewed image about what life is all about. And sometimes they miss what they have in front of them, being grateful for what you have. Yep. And for me, it's just reversing that. Look at what you have. Stop looking at what's out there. Because mm. the moment you get it, you want something else. And yes. you keep moving the goalpost. Yep. And when you teach kids that, you can see the shift. Mm. You can see the shift that they start being more um, intrinsic about yep. their motivation and about the way how they want to learn and what is the, the, the purpose of and meaning of why they come to school, for example. Mm. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's that's really good, uh, really good insights there. And that yeah, that language and those habits such a crucial thing. And um, and Judah, I know that um, you're a, you're a doc, you have a doctorate. Um, and I'd love yes. to know uh, maybe if you'd like to share. It doesn't have to be your latest one, but a piece of research that was maybe significant in the education space or whatever whatever more that be. Have you, have you got something you can oh. share in terms of research? Yeah. Oh, I'm in the middle of, uh, well, kind of towards the end, actually, in the middle uh, uh, of a longitudinal study, actually, done in a school in Dubai, in an Indian school. Yep. And uh, we embedded mental toughness as an approach uh, and mental toughness and flourishing. Yep. Um, so I'm an advisor for the global study with Harvard University. And it's one of my greatest privilege to understand what does human flourishing mean at levels in different countries, in 22 countries we're looking. We, we just started the study in back in, in January. Mm. But I taken so much of that um, element of what does it what does it mean to be um, to flourish and um, and I, I wanted to create a, a, a link between flourishing and mental toughness because I always feel like uh, doctor, my doctorate is in conceptualization of mental toughness in education. And I always felt is not a lot of research on in education for mental toughness. And I feel like I always have to defend the world with the word itself. Yeah. And when I went to this school, there's like mental toughness, what is that? And so I know from sports, but why do we need it? 
you know and I knew that is a almost like a hook liner with the with the Indian school because they thought that's it okay right so that means we're building these kids to be incredibly successful and the first year was just <laughs> oh wow that you know you go in there you have all these plans and then you realize that everything you have to scrape and that's why I was telling you before that collaborating with teachers however amazing you are as a researcher yeah unless you work with the teachers to co-create something uh, being an approach being a, a curriculum whatever it is you're never ever gonna see that change you want to see so for me this longitudinal study started about three years ago yep um so we had an approach to teachers first so we trained the teachers Yep. We tra trained them in the science of well-being and flourishing to start with, and then we introduced the element of mental toughness. And, um, and that's really putting simple how to navigate life challenges without compromising your well-being. Mm. As simple as that. Yep. And seeing kids, you know, I walk into the school, I went about two months ago, and I walk in the school, and there is a buzz about the school. Yeah. And you can see they just had an inspection, actually, and they literally went from being a good school to an outstanding school um, on academic achievement. But as much as on the academic as, as well, the kids seem less stressed, they take stock and also they have this time out for themselves mm. where we tell, told them if you in a classroom, you lose focus and attention, go take five minutes go out in the in out of the room and do something you passion to do something and introduce brain breakers with so many skills but there is, is weaved within the curriculum itself so we have a standard curriculum that is you know a standalone curriculum which is yep. taught once a week for an hour from grade six to grade 11 yep um every single week but also they've got um their own space to um, to learn through interdisciplinary. So through the um, English, for example, they learn about Anne Frank uh, book and they learn how to 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 um, to unpick what resilience or mental toughness for Anne was during the Second World War. So mm. it's weaved within the curriculum as well, yeah. Yeah. and it's through the questioning really. Mm. It's as simple as that. So for me, that so I'm I'm really excited because I have about six months left, and the piece of research is coming out. But I, it it has kind of vindicated me because I always felt that everything shows promise, but you never quite see it where you wanted to go. Mm. And I realize how important is this co-collaboration, co-creation, and the consistency consistency of the approach. Yeah. Even being well-being, I mean, there's so many beautiful frameworks. You've got PERMA still, you've got SEARCH from uh, Lee Waters, you, you've got PROSPER. You, there's so many good frameworks you can take. Mm. But like you said in the beginning, the teachers, if they can find something which works for them, look at what the gap is in your school. Look at what you're trying to achieve and work with someone to make it happen and mm. be consistent in your approach. Absolutely. No, it's great. So, um, yeah, when's that? When's that research out? Do you think? Uh, hopefully in March. March, excellent. Looking forward yeah. to seeing that for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it, it's it's been you know, and you can see the transition over the three years. Well, yeah. this is the fourth year. How much has changed, and how how much we've changed everything, our own approach, and mm. 
um, you know, because you have to approach um, well-being with a cultural sensitivity as well. Yeah. Um, you can't just think, well, because this worked in that one school, this is going to work in that school. So you have to be very, very flexible to to change that nuance. That's all it is. It's about nuances, about how you, you, you that lens and perspective of how to approach different tools, tool, tool kits, you know, or, yeah. you know, even with the gratitude, you know, mm-hmm. you can't just go in uh, in a country like, for example, Kuwait and kind of frame it the same way like we would do it in the West. You have mm-hmm. to be much more delicate and much more sensitive yep. on how is that expressed. Mm, interesting. Yeah, between <laughs> cultures, it's, uh, yeah, it's a really good point. Actually, something that maybe we don't think about um, all the time, but I guess in your situation where you are in different countries and different cultures, you probably notice that's a really important thing, which is uh, a great, <laughs> when great you, point. You, when you just think that you've you've nailed it in, you think, oh, I've just got it. And then you yeah. go to another country thinking, mm, maybe I didn't. But uh, I did realise one thing that there are four dimensions of the well-being, regardless of the country. One, it's awareness. Yep. The other one is connection. Yeah. The other one is insight and purpose. You've yep. got these four dimensions, yep. doesn't matter which country you go to, you can make it work. Four dimensions. Can you just repeat them again? They were brilliant. <laughs> Awareness, connection, yep. insight, and purpose. Fantastic. Yeah, that's a great, great takeaway there, Jordan. And I think what we might we might leave there. I think that's been a very insightful and interesting conversation. I've certainly taken a lot out of it, and I've been taking a few notes as we've been um, talking here and. Uh, I'm sure that a lot of the listeners will take a lot of lot of a lot of out of that um, conversation. So I really appreciate your time, Judah, and uh, what you had to offer us today. And I know that you've got a, a couple websites that you could uh, send people to. What what are what are those websites? And we'll include them in the um, show notes as well. Yeah. So there's my um, my education one, which is Positive Ed, uh, which www.positive-ed.co.uk, yep. and that's really aimed at education and the mental toughness institute is something which is really very close to my heart because i only launched about a couple of months ago but not really officially and that's really um, holds a lot of products courses and booklets and um you know just to make it very very scalable but also to give people something you know, not everybody has time to take a course necessarily, but they might just take a little small booklet on positive emotions or uh, mental toughness, what that mean. Mm. Um, and just wanted to make it really uh, kind of cheap and accessible, really, mm. for yeah, people absolutely. to kind of take that, um, you know, that next step towards flourishing. Yeah, yeah brilliant. Uh, definitely, definitely check those websites out. I've had a look at them and a lot of good resources on there for people to, um, people to access. So, Jordan, I really appreciate your time and uh, thanks for joining us on the podcast today. No, thank you so much. It's uh, greatly appreciated your invite. Thank you so much. Pleasure.